Amen. Amen. Well, you guys may be seated. So my name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here at Holmes Avenue. I want to thank you guys for joining us. I do want to make a note that uh, if you feel led to give to support our ministries or the Annie Armstrong offering, you're able to give uh, online, of course, at any point, or you're able to give as you exit today. Uh, So today we're going to be looking into the book of Leviticus, uh, looking at chapters uh, 18 and chapters 20. Uh, As Brian joked, uh, we will not be here till 4 p.m. I will make sure you get to the buffet at Golden Corral on time. But we do have a lot of ground to cover. And so with that in mind, I want to go ahead and jump to the text. Uh, What we're going to do today is that uh, I'm going to read uh, chapter 18 and Pastor Brian's going to read chapter 20 for us. And we'll begin to wrestle with the scriptures together. So uh, if you would allow me to read these passages over you. Uh, Chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Verse 16. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. And you shall not take of her son's daughters or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she was in her menstrual uncleanness. You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it, it is perversion." Do not make yourselves unclean by these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you, you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. 
For everyone who does any of these abominations, the person who, who, persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Moloch, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut, cut him off from among his people, because he has given one of his children to Moloch to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he has given one of his children to Moloch and do not put him to death, then I shall set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Moloch. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers whoring after them, I will set my face against that, per that person and will cut him off from among his people." Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For if anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death, and he has cursed his father or his mother, his blood is upon him. Verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. The blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, and they, will have, they may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches an animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and they shall bear his iniquity. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he, shall, he has made naked her fountain, and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among the people. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or of your father's sister, or that is to make naked one's relative. They shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving you out before you. For, you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to, process, to possess in a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or anything with which the ground crawls, <clears throat> excuse me, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord your God, and I have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. A man or a woman who is a median or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. This is the word of the Lord.
Thank you for that, Brian, for pinch hitting. When you get to a word you don't know how to pronounce, you just say it loudly and with confidence, and no one knows, right? We don't know what half of these words are supposed to be pronounced as. Well, we've read a lot of verses here, and what we're looking at today is God's ethics and His people. That we're looking at a standard that God has set for His people to live by. And as we wrestle with this idea of ethics, at the end of the core of it, the simplest form, ethics is simply a series of guidance or rules or, or things that we have in place that allow us to make decisions. A, a series, a standard, if you will, of things in place that allow us to make decisions. And as we talk about ethics, we see very clearly that God has established some ethics before us. And everyone has an ethical system, right? Everyone has a standard by which they're making decisions, by the way they're evaluating things, by the way they're doing things. Everyone has ethics. In our culture today, we live in a world where ethics are defined by individuals, where it's a very individual system. That we live in a world where the culture says that you find your truth and you define what is your truth. That if you decide that you're the wrong gender, you're able to change your gender. If you decide that you are pursuing this relationship, you can pursue this relationship. If you decide that you are supposed to be a certain way, you get to be this certain way. That it's a world where truth is defined by what you believe and everyone else's opinion be darned. You see, it's a culture that says the only truth that is to be found is what you think is true. Now, I don't have to perhaps lay out the logical issue with that. That what the culture is saying is that there is no one truth, that everyone defines their own truth. Everyone defines their own ethical system. Yet the problem is that ethics have to be based on something. The things you believe that guide you in making decisions have to have a foundation in something. And what the world has chosen to define its ethical system by is a slippery slope that can mean whatever you want it to believe, whatever you want it to mean. We, as God's people, do not get to define our ethical system. We don't get to state what we think is right or wrong. God has done that for us in His Word. God has made very clear the things that are right and the things that are wrong for us. We may have opinions, we may have disagreements, but at the end of the day, the problem is with us, not with God's Word. And so very clearly, as we study the Scriptures, God has some opinions about the ethics of His people and how we're to live and act. God has some opinions, perhaps the opinion to be said, about how His people are to live. And so as we look at this today, we're looking at chapters 18 and chapters 20. Pastor Brian's going to look at chapter 19 next week. We've combined these two because they're covering the same topic. And what the topic is, is that God has a standard by which His people are expected to live. Now, as we look at this, our first point is God's covenant and His people. You see, as we study the Scriptures here, and you can see the Scripture references on the screen. Uh, there's a lot of them, and I'm not going to go back and read those for you. But as we look at these, we recognize that in these passages, God is beginning and ending these passages with the statement, I am the Lord your God. You see, Moses, as he's writing this, is repeatedly emphasizing the authority of the source of the instructions we're being given. That this ethical system, and that's what the book of Leviticus is, it is a book of ethics for people's holiness 
it is a standard by which God is desiring us to live, that Moses is making clear that the one who has the authority to say these things is God himself. When he says, I am the Lord your God, he's making it very clear with that phrase, your God, that God has redeemed a people for himself. You see, this redemption that God has provided to the called out ones, those that God has said, you are mine, comes with blessings and guidelines to maintain these blessings. You see, the reality is that Moses is emphasizing the authority of God due to these teachings in the chapters. Now, as we look at this, as we're addressing the ideas of things like sexual morality and uh, sorcery and all these things that come up, we have to recognize that these are very countercultural in our world. That even today, these are countercultural ideas that we would talk about things like sexual purity and integrity, not so that you would receive blessings like the purity movement, but that you would be a person who honors your God, who redeemed you by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This idea of purity for the sake of worship is countercultural to our world today. We live in a world that says the way you worship is by living and doing whatever you want. It's a world that is filled with hedonism and pursuit of pleasure. That if you want to worship, just be you and you are going to be exalting the God that you worship yourself. Now, in the ancient world, it wasn't very different. In fact, uh, Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, we don't come up with any new ideas. We just come up with different versions of them. The truth is that in the ancient world, that was how the world lived. It was this hedonistic pursuit of pleasure. Whatever can bring you satisfaction and joy, you personally, it's worth pursuing. Now, in the ancient world, as we're looking at these passages, we have to recognize that the ancient world viewed how creation came about as gods and goddesses, that's lowercase g, creating the world through sexual relations. That we look at the ancient stories and we see what ancient cultures would say is that the world's created through gods, these gods and goddesses having relations and the world is created from that. In contrast to that, the Christian God, the God that we worship, the one true God, is not a sexual being. He simply spoke the world into existence. The phrase is ex nihilo, from nothing. God speaks and things are created. You see, he's unique among the gods of the ancient world. He's not a sexual being with wives and consorts. And if you look back at ancient history, this is what the world thought. They defined their gods by very human terms. You see, the foundation of this teaching, the, the way of living we see here, these are found in the commandments of God. We follow God, and that means we submit to His law. We submit to His basic commandments that He has said, this is what you are to do to follow me. The fundamental truth of it is, is that when you create your own universe, you get to make the rules. And God, in creating the heavens and earth, has established rules that we are to follow. That when you create your own universe, you can make up your own rules. The problem is, as we look at this, is that we as people, we have a tendency to fall into confusion about creation and the Creator. You see, throughout history we've fallen into idolatry and false worship. That we have a long history of worshiping anything and everything we can find to bring us pleasure, to bring us satisfaction, to bring us hope, to bring us life. 
that you merely have to look back at a long list of ancient religions and cults and what we would find today. And you see that people are just chasing anything to bring satisfaction to them. Even the people of Israel do this. Not only do we have the story of the golden calf in Exodus where Moses literally goes up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and he comes back down and within minutes the people have made a golden calf to worship. But shortly after Leviticus happening during the time of the Exodus, we get to the book of Judges, just a few books over. And the book of Judges is set about 40 to maybe 100 years after this passage. The people have gone through the Exodus, those 40 years of wandering. They're going in to take the promised land. They're getting the things that God has put before them. They've taken the land. They have this land of milk and honey and prosperity and everything they've looked for. And in Judges 3, the Hebrew people begin to worship the Canaanite god of fertility. That they begin to associate with the temple prostitutes of this fertility God. They begin to offer their children to this fertility God. Less than 40 years after this moment. The truth is, is that you and I are idol factories. We will find something to worship if you give us a blank room and us alone. We will worship something in that room. Now, today in our culture, we recognize that we see this confusion everywhere when we talk about sexual relations and gender. That it doesn't take very much time watching the news to recognize that the world is confused about sex and gender. And part of the problem we have in addressing that is that we've become accustomed to this general idea of Christendom. And what that means is that we've become accustomed to this idea that people would generally assent They would say, I think this Christian worldview is right, even if they don't believe in God. That's the crowd that would say, don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, and don't associate with those that do. That's the type of Christendom we're talking about, where people had a basic understanding that ethics are defined by someone else, and even if they don't believe in him, that doesn't negate the ethics. That doesn't mean they're wrong. The reality is that we're moving into a time, a culture, an era where that is gone away with. That where in the past you can make a basic appeal to those basic worldviews and people would know what you're talking about. Now, people of my generation and younger, when you make the appeal to that worldview, they don't know who God is or what He's done. The, the, The thing that they define their worldview by is that I get to do what I want because I am God. You see, culture is becoming increasingly hostile to those that believe in a Christian worldview. That those of us who hold to a traditional Christian worldview, we are becoming the minority in this world. Yet, we must cling tightly to this worldview. That if we abandon or compromise in it, we lose our moral authority in this world because we lose the one who gives us authority. You see, whenever we come to a situation where it looks like someone has moved between God and His people, it's always His people that have moved away. And you and I, as Bible-believing Christians, must make a decision, are we going to hold tightly to the traditional Christian worldview defined in Scripture, or are we going to move away from God and loosen our grip on the Bible so that we can find accommodation in a hostile world. 
Well, many churches and many denominations have chosen to do the latter. They have moved away from the Bible and the things of Christ to find accommodation in a hostile world. The world is very friendly to you if you believe the same things they believe. Yet verses 24 through 30 make it very clear what will happen to us if we do so. If we choose to move away from a traditional biblical worldview, if we fail to obey God's instructions, we will face judgment just like the nations that inhabit the promised land God is taking His people to. When you look at how God has described the people of the promised land, He said that they have defiled it because they have lived in any way that they desire, and they've lived in a way that is counter to me. And because they have done so, they are going to be driven out from this land, and I will give it to my people who will live as their Lord God intends for them to live. You see, as we look ahead into the passage here, we see that the last few verses of Leviticus 20 give us the biggest reason why this is important. You see, if we have failed to abide by these moral instructions, we are no longer a holy people. If we fail to abide by these moral instructions, we are no longer a holy people. We're absolutely just like everyone else. You see, the reason that this is important to us, the reason we want to cling tightly to these ideas, is that we, like the nation of Israel, are intended to be an example of God's holiness to the world. You see, through us, we're to be an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer to bring hope and life to a lost and dying world. Now, what does that mean in terms of how we respond to things of sexual immorality, homosexuality, all the other things that are listed here in these passages? The Scriptures make it very clear that sexual morality as a lifestyle is contrary to the Christian walk. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21 read, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul writing Galatians, makes it very clear that the, the nature of the Christian lifestyle requires a measure of holiness. Now, this is not to say that those who've committed these sins are not believers. I'll be the first to tell you that Christianity does not mean that you are perfect. But what Paul is making clear here is that those who regularly commit and submit to these ways of living are not submitting to the Spirit of God. They're submitting to the devil and sin. That consistently pursuing these things means that you are not being changed by the transforming work of the Spirit and what you worship is yourself, not God. Now, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you and I? How are we to respond to this reality? How are we to live life in such a way that would bring honor and glory to Him? Well, God gives us some instructions. He tells us there are some ways to live. You see, the next section we're going to look at, we're going to look at God's holiness and His people. We're going to look at God's holiness and His people. 
Now, the next two chunks of Scripture, we're going to be looking at God laying out some things for His people. And His priority here, His emphasis here, is not just moral behavior, but pursuit of a Holy Spirit. That the truth is, is that if you're living in sinful behavior, you cannot have a repentant heart. What that requires you to do to have a repentant heart is to reject sin, to turn away from it, and to look to the things of Christ. God is saying that if you're doing sinful things, then sin is in your heart. And if sin is in your heart, you need to kill that first. And if you kill that, we can end these sinful things. Now, as we look at this idea of God's holiness and His people, this is the main point of this entire passage of Scripture. Yet, they're broken up into some very smaller chunks. And as we look at it, you can think of these as points to A, to B, to C. There are some different sections here that Moses is addressing for us to understand. Now, there are many things that are covered in these two chapters, but the root concern, again, is holiness. God is concerned about His people and their holiness. Yes, sexual relations are heavily addressed in these sections of Scripture, but so are things like child sacrifice, sorcery, and so many other things that are contrary to God's will. But the bulk of it really is addressing sexual relations between people. So point 2A is forbidden sexual relations. Now as we look at this section, as we read through that list, if you remember that exhaustive list we read, we have to understand that this list isn't covering every single detail about what God is saying, do not do, right? There are very likely things that are written here that are not in line with God's will. Rather, this is a representative list that shows us the type of behaviors that we are to stay away from as God's people. Now, you've probably, as you heard that, you heard the phrase, uncover the nakedness, and that's a very polite way of saying sexual relations, just so we're on the same page. It's not a euphemism for anything. It means sexual relations. That's literally what the Hebrew translates as, just so we're on the same page. Now, as we look at this, verses 6 through 18 are laying out these prohibited sexual relations between families. Now, in our modern era, as we look at these verses, they seem to be very out of place. We read this and we think that this is common sense, that this is not a type of relationship that people would pursue. But again, we're putting our modern understanding on things, on the text. We have to go back to what was the original context that the writer was addressing. Well, there are two things we've got to understand to make sense of these verses. You see, first, many ancient cultures, and some modern ones as well, do not have the same family structures that you and I have. We can go through our genealogies, right? And we can name mom, dad, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, second cousins, third cousins, first cousins once removed, right? Like we know those things within our culture. And that's a part of it is because our culture, typically in America and the West, has put such an emphasis on family and genealogy. Yet, not every culture does this. You see, most cultures and those in the ancient world would acknowledge immediate family. So mom, dad, brother, sister. But anything beyond that wasn't a part of the framework. That you were a part of the same clan or tribe, perhaps. But there wasn't an established framework for how you're to interact and live with one another. God, having created the family order in Genesis, is clarifying and providing guidance for his people on how to live with one another. 
That he is saying that this is the way that you've been created as a family unit. Let's give some clear definition and guidance on how you're to interact with one another. He is laying out, and this is key for the second point, he's laying out a distinctive way of living for people in the surrounding area. He is saying that you're going to live in such a way that is contrary or different than those around you. You see, the surrounding people are stereotypical people with no acknowledgement of this created family order. That they live and pursue sexual relations with whoever and with however they would like. That there is no guidance for them. Their only guidance is the pursuit of pleasure and joy. This is a clear line in the sand between God's people and the lost people that are surrounding them. Remember, as we've talked about God's holiness, He is essentially drawing lines in the sand saying that if you are my people, you will live in a certain way. And this way is going to be distinct. It will be clear because no one else will live this way. No one else will hold themselves to this standard. That you will be, as Christ says in the New Testament, a light on a hill. That the world will look at you and go, they are fundamentally different from anyone and everyone here. Why? Why are they so different? Why do they live in such a unique way? Now, as we address those verses, we have to get into the next section. And Moses transitions just a little bit, and he's going in verses 19 through 23 to give us unlawful sexual relations that are not family related. So he's addressing some broader things here. And they're included because they fit with this general topic here. As God's giving guidance and instructions, he's saying there are some other things you need to know that you need to stay away from. So he gives a prohibition against sexual relations with a woman who's in her menstrual cycle. We've already covered that back in Leviticus 12 as he talks about this separation from the surrounding people, that this was a part of pagan worship, this blood and, and, and sexual relations, that this was a way that the pagans around them worshipped. And he's saying, there's a line in the sand here, you will be distinct and different. There's a prohibition against covetousness, essentially. This adultery with another person's spouse. One of the things that we have to recognize as we look at the book of Leviticus is that it's essentially an extended commentary on the Ten Commandments. That God has given us the Ten Commandments. You've probably got some of those memorized, if not all of them. And he has said, this is what you shall not do and this is what you shall do. And Leviticus is taking those Ten Commandments and extrapolating those and going, let's give you a little more detail, right? Because it says, thou shall not covet, but what should you not covet? Well, anything that's not yours, right? And so he's giving some very specific detail so that his people know precisely how they are to live. We also see there's a prohibition against things like child sacrifice, homosexuality, and bestiality. That as we look at this, the, you know, things like human sacrifice and bestiality are so evil that we find it hard to believe that these practices could even occur. And it's true that as we look at the historical record, they are rare in some respects, but they weren't completely impossible. That we have records of these things occurring within the surrounding people that would surround the nation of Israel. It was a reality that the people of Israel had to face that there are some actions and things that are occurring that you are going to stay away from. Now for us today, as we look at these things that are uh, prohibited throughout this section of forbidden sexual relations, the, the main thing that we see occurring in our culture today 
is adultery and homosexual lifestyle. That as we look at our culture today, those are the primary things that we see that is being addressed, that is being talked about today. I want to be very clear as we look into these things that we need to make sure we have some guidelines as we're talking about this. First and foremost, both are equal sins. Both are sexual relations that are forbidden. Homosexuality and adultery. Neither is worse than the other. At the end of the day, both are sins that you are condemned for by God. Just as we will be condemned for lying, cheating, stealing, coveting, anything like that. They are sins. They're not in a special category. The second thing is that God is capable of forgiving both of them. It's true. God can forgive both sins, that of adultery and that of homosexuality, by His grace and mercy. Yet they stand out to us because they do have some significant consequences to us socially. That is, they impact more people than just the person who's committed it. That it has a ripple effect, that it affects multiple people, families, groups of people, etc. Yet as we look at these two things, we recognize that same-sex relationships, homosexuality, become a part of the culture today. That it is true that adultery is not necessarily acceptable today, but the reality is that it's not universally condemned as well. That we live in a culture that says, that's not quite okay, but it's not that big of a deal. It happens sometimes. Homosexuality, along with the rest of the LGBT community, has become a celebrated part of human sexuality in our culture today. Yet, as we look at the scriptures, as we study this, we look at even the words of Jesus... These things are clear that heterosexual relationships are the biblical norm and expectation. That one of the common arguments against this is that, well, Jesus didn't talk about homosexuality. He didn't talk about heterosexuality. That must mean he didn't care. That must mean that it's acceptable to pursue these things. And the truth is that that's just a creative lie from Satan himself. The reality is that when we look at the New Testament, when we see Jesus coming to earth, when he speaks, when he talks through things, it's to do one of two things. It is to A, give us wisdom that we don't yet possess. You know this, but I tell you that this, right? Or two, it is to correct misunderstandings. You don't get the way this is actually supposed to play out, so let me address how this is supposed to be done. The fact that Jesus didn't address homosexuality meant that he thought the people of Israel had gotten that right. He said, this isn't a problem because you both believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. You've got that right. The problems you have are how to address adultery. The problems you have are how to deal with a man who's cheating on his wife. The problem you have is how to deal with a woman who's had multiple husbands. You don't know how to address the rest of it, but you've got the foundation right. That is, it is a man and a woman in unity. You see, Jesus didn't address it because they had that much figured out. You see, the clear teaching we see here throughout the Scriptures is that God is concerned with how His people live because our lives are direct examples to the world of His holiness and His character. This is why we are concerned about sexual relations. This is why we are concerned about immorality. This is why we are concerned about homosexuality. And I want you to hear this very clearly. That nothing I have said is a condemnation of someone who is experiencing same-sex desires. It's simply a recognition that they are in sin just like I am in sin and we both need to repent of sin. 
That at the end of the day, we are all at level ground at the foot of the cross and we are all broken, wretched sinners in need of a Savior. The truth is that some of our sins are a little more open and visible than others, yet we're all in need of mercy and forgiveness. And the Scriptures also make very clear that God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, is more than willing to provide that mercy and forgiveness for those who call upon the name of the Lord. Now, as we recognize that there's a standard of living that God has established for His people, there must be some consequences or penalties for not living in such a way. You see, 2B is going to be penalties for disobedience. That's really the bulk of chapter 20, that God is addressing some penalties for disobedience. Now, this example is very important to God because He provides a clear description of penalties to those who don't abide by His teachings. That just as you and I would discipline our children when they don't listen to the things that we've told them to do, when they don't follow the directions that are provided, then we correct them, God provides correction as well. And we see that the most severe penalty is execution of the offender by the people of the community. That is, for those who commit these sins and who are unrepentant for them, they're to be executed. Lesser offenses merit expulsion from the community, that is, being cut off from the people, much as we would practice church discipline in the New Testament, that we would excommunicate someone, that they are separated from the body, that they no longer have the rights and privileges of a member. That this is a severe set of penalties. Why? Why is God so strict right here? Well, the reason for these penalties is found in the Ten Commandments. The reason that these penalties are so strict and rigorous for unrepentant people is the Ten Commandments. You see, the Ten Commandments, this is the heart of the covenant that the people of God lived under. This is the very core of everything we see and believe a part of the covenant. We have to recognize that this provides obligations for God's people that they are to live by. That they must live by these standards if they're to be blessed. In return, if they live by these standards, they follow God in such a way, they receive the land of promise and many other blessings in Scripture. If they don't, we see that the penalty of disobedience is things like war, plague, and drought. That in fact, all of Deuteronomy chapter 28 is Moses telling the people of Israel, the Lord your God has established His covenant with you. If we obey, you enter into the land and your family for all generations will rest here. If you disobey, these things will happen. That Moses, though he does not go into the promised land with the people of Israel because of his own disobedience, stands before them and warns them the penalty of disobedience is punishment, correction, rebuke. Moses stands on the banks of the Jordan watching his people cross over because of his own disobedience. Now, The reality is, as we look through the entire book of Leviticus, that there are a lot of things that God has said to do and a lot of things He said to not do. See, the transgressions that are outlined through this book are transgressions against this covenant. And as we say covenant, we've got to understand what this is. That it's not just like a carrot and stick, but rather it's a contract, an agreement between two parties. 
that Kelly and I are in the process of selling our house to move a little closer to the area. And as we've been doing this, we've been working through signing different documents and contracts that says we as the seller will do A, B, and C. The buyer agrees to do one, two, and three. If either one of us fails to live up to those expectations, there are penalties outlined in the contract. That is the relationship, a covenant relationship between God and his people. Where God says, I provide the faithfulness, the forgiveness, the mercy and grace. I provide all the blessings and the gifts. All that you provide is the obedience to my law and commands. And if you do this, I'll continue to shower these things upon you. But if you stray away, I need to correct you so that you come back to my loving embrace. You see, God is not an angry God, but he's a loving parent who's graciously correcting his children. The further away we get, the harsher the punishment, because what will make us run back to dad faster than anything? The fear of what is going on around us. The reality is, as God is addressing these transgressions that are outlined in the book of Leviticus, is that none of them are merely just private matters. You see, the truth is, though we don't like to say this in our world today, that every person's religious and moral behavior impacts the lives and well-being of their neighbors and fellow citizens. You see, our culture believes that things like sexual matters that our personal preferences, the things we do in private, are private, and that we should not legislate morality. Well, I recognize that the truth of it is that we are concerned about too much government intrusion and too much engagement in our lives. Here's the truth. The problem with that whole statement is that a person's private behavior always spills out into public. Sin wants to be found out. Satan desires nothing more than for God's people to be brought to shame when their sin comes to light and don't, don't own it. How often have we seen the news reports of a celebrity, a politician, any famous person you can name who's done this, right? You put the news on and what you're going to see consistently is that people have been living a double life. On the outside, things are fine. They're a good, upright citizen. But on the inside, they're a sinful train wreck. The truth of it is, is that who you are on the inside will always come out. Who you are on the inside will always make its way known. There is no sin you can hide. There is no activity you can keep secret. Nothing will keep itself hidden from the light of God. Yet in the midst of this, as we see these transgressions and these penalties outlined, God promises blessings for his people. You see, 2C in this latter part of chapter 20 is God promising blessings of obedience for his people. You see, the reward of keeping the law was favor of God upon the nation. If you remember the story as Joshua and the spies go into the promised land, they come back with reports like, did you know there are giants here? Literal giants. Goliath was one of them. Nine feet tall. Literal giants in this land. The, the people are too numerous for us to count. They have fortresses all over the place. They're a warlike people. That all of these spies have come back and said, 
I don't know what God is saying, but this land ain't going to be ours. You have Joshua who says, but the Lord has promised this land. The Lord has promised us this land. If he has brought us out of Egypt, won't he bring us into this land? You see, what happened there is the people of Israel failed to be obedient to God's commands. Or he said, go into the land, I'll give it to you. It's yours. They didn't keep their side of the bargain. You see, the reward for obedience for the people of Israel was the land. That they go into this promised land that is flowing with milk and honey. Maybe you don't like either of those things, but in the ancient culture, that is a sign of prosperity. Flowing with milk and honey. Only the wealthy had those things. This is like God telling us that we go into a land that is populated by Ferraris and Macs. Only the wealthy have these things. It is a land of plenty. It is a land of prosperity. It is a land where legitimately you walk in and things bloom and God is being so generous and gracious to you. Yet the people didn't obey. You and I also live under a covenant today. As believers in God, we are under a covenant that is a new covenant with Christ. Our reward is still one of blessing that is spiritual blessing. We receive an inheritance that is waiting for us in heaven. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, what he's making clear here is that nothing can separate you from the blessings of obedience if you're faithful to trust in Christ. Nothing can separate you from this inheritance that is resting for you in heaven. That if you trust in Christ and live in accordance to his guidance, this will be yours. Our final point today is God's people and their witness. At the end of this entire section of Scripture, there's still the concern of being a distinct people that are following God in a lost and dying world. We see that throughout the book of Leviticus, God is drawing lines in the sand for His people to stay within. That he's creating boundaries on their behaviors and their ethics because he is saying that if you follow me, I am holy, therefore you're going to be holy. And if you're holy, all the world will look at you and go, they are so different. They are a kingdom that is being blessed. They are a kingdom that is like no other. What's the difference between us and them? The God that they serve. You see, he tells us in the book of Exodus, as they've just escaped Egypt, he tells them that Israel is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter quotes those words in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim what the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
You see, this is the very core of the gospel message, that God in laying out these behaviors, these expectations, these standards for holiness for His people, He recognizes the reality that we are going to stray away. We are going to sin. Plain and simply, we are imperfect people who are sinful and will choose to sin anytime, any day. That even today we have been guilty of sin because each one of us has sinned today. And the truth is that God recognizes that reality that we are going to sin and fall short of His standard and He has made a way through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That He has made a way for us to be called a holy nation, a royal priesthood because of what Christ has done on the cross. And so today as you and I are here hearing the words of Scripture, we have an opportunity to confess to Christ our sin and shame. We have an opportunity to cry out to Him, I am not perfect, but God, would you make me holy and righteous? Would you bring forgiveness of our sin and shame? Would you humble me and lead me to the cross, Father? See, as I said earlier, at the foot of the cross, we're all on level ground. And the truth of that is, is not because of anything that we have done. In fact, the only thing we have done to make salvation necessary is the sin that required Jesus to die. You see, we're on level ground at the foot of the cross because we're all broken people who are in desperate need of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And so today, here in the next few minutes, we have an opportunity to together kneel at the level ground that's at the foot of the cross. That you and I have a chance to humble ourselves, repenting of our sins, and trusting in Jesus today. That it doesn't matter if you are a believer or if you're not a believer. Our response to God's holiness is to recognize that we are not holy and we need forgiveness. So today, in our time of prayer and moving before the Lord, before our final worship song, this is a chance for us to humble ourselves and to confess our desperate need for a Savior. So here in the next few minutes, I'm going to give you some time to silently, to pray to the Lord, to beg Him to move in your life. That if you want someone to pray with you, Pastor Brian and I will be available. We'll be here to hear what God's doing in your life. If you want someone to pray with you or for you, come see me. But I'll give us a few moments of silent prayer. Where individually we'll go to the Lord and I'll close us together in corporate prayer. And then we'll stand and sing of the glory and goodness of God. So if you would, would you bow your heads and go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, you are holy. You are like no other. You are perfect. You're glorious. You are a being that we can't even imagine. We can't even fathom the riches of your grace and mercy. 
And Father, it is that lavish grace and mercy that we appeal to today. We recognize as we read the Scriptures that we've not lived in a way that is in accordance to with Your holiness, to what You've commanded us to be. And we humble ourselves before You and repent of that. Father, in this time, may we confess of any sin that we have, any shame that we've hidden. May we look to You and humbly confess where we've fallen short. May we throw ourselves upon the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus. May we come to you with confidence that you are capable of changing our hearts and minds. May we approach you like the woman with the bleeding issue of blood and just simply seek to touch the hem of your robe and be cleansed. Father, we pray that as we humble ourselves before you, that the Spirit changes us that our hearts and minds are transformed by the Spirit, that in repenting of our sin and trusting in you, Jesus, we are made new. And that as this new person, as this new follower of Christ, as this person who's repented of their sins, that you would allow us to live in a way that brings honor and glory to your name. So, Father, we pray that you humble us, that you lead us to repentance, You take us to the foot of the cross where we can cry out our sin and shame and trust in you for forgiveness and mercy. And Father, we pray that in these next few minutes as we sing this final song, that we would rejoice in the good news that we can be forgiven, that we have a risen Savior who sits on high, and that we are called your children. Father, we are thankful for you, and we pray these things. In the name of Jesus, amen.